When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. And today, money. Now it's no longer tied to the gold standard. Money can be added all the time by central banks and by commercial banks and in other ways, like through government debt. So do we need to rein in the amount of money that's created and who benefits from money creation? In short, is there a better way of managing money than we do at present? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. So, Steve, I mean, money is created by banks, by central banks and by commercial banks with very few constraints. So, in theory, uh, the more money they create, then uh, more money creates higher inflation. The higher the inflation rate, the higher the interest rates from the central bank. Um, so, uh, And the higher the interest rates, then the more money the banks make. So, isn't there a bit of self-interest there? Uh, yes, there is an incredible amount of self-interest. As, as Bill Black once put it brilliantly in one of his books, in the title of the book, and no less, uh, the best way to rob a bank is to own one. So this, that's true. But the trouble is partly why they get away with being able to rob the banks while owning them at the same time is people don't understand the monetary creation mechanism, nor do they understand the impact. So a lot of Austrians expect the sort of causal chain you're talking about, which is rather hard to reconcile with the real world, whereas uh, the, the more banks have cre- more uh, money creation has occurred, the lower the interest rate has got, not the higher. Right. So what have I, what's wrong in that causal mechanism that I gave there then? Well, first of all, thought the banks can just basically dump dump the money on on our system, uh, whatever whatever the mechanism they have to actually cause the creation of money. Part of that vision that the banks can create uh, you know, lots and lots of money and therefore that can cause inflation implies that the money goes in and increases spending without whacking anything around your ankles to discourage spending. Right, and and that's effectively the. I mean, the, the, well, I guess the, I mean there's got to be demand as well, hasn't it? I mean, they can't just create money. They've got to create got to create money because people have got to be asking for that money. In other words, they they've come to the bank and said, "Can I have a loan, please?" Yeah, and that, so it's a two sided uh, operation to begin with at that level. But what we tend this is this is the classic thing about economists. Well, one of the many classic things about them, their economic theories, but the mainstream theories in particular, focus upon flows. They focus upon some some rates, such as the rate of interest, but they focus upon uh, the level of uh, ch- change in government spending, GDP, which is itself a flow, and so on. Uh, new money, which is also a flow. What they leave out is that creation of new money creates another stock, and that's called debt. Yeah, and that is does not figure in their thinking at all. So if what they what they're imagining is they create lots of money, then there's going to be lots of spending. Well, no, not if not if you've got lots of debt attached to it as well, which you have to service. Yeah, and uh, and so the, so the, the the causal link of people see directly from money creation to inflation just does not happen in the real world. Yeah, I mean that is the I mean that is the fundamental problem, isn't it? That as we add to the money supply, it does it starts life. As a debt, money is created because it's money somebody that, that, that owes. It's, it's obviously the wrong start in life for a bit of extra currency. 
Yeah, and that's right. If, if we actually were part of this, this see Milton Friedman's model of, uh, of, of money growth causing inflation and Milton's classic line is still reverberates in the empty shells called brains sitting atop politicians' heads, uh, is that uh, money is always never, inflation is always everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Now, his model of inflation was a helicopter flying over, quite literally, this is where the idea of helicopter money came from. His a hypothetical model was a, was a little uh, planet uh, on or on continent on which over which a helicopter flew flew simply dropping money uh, notes from the sky. Now these notes were used as commerce, but they had absolutely no liability attached to them. Though if you pick them up off the ground, and this is his model of how people mm. got the money, they'd scramble grabbing the money that had dropped out of the helicopter. You know, rather than napalm, they're dropping dollar notes. Yeah, give me a break. Um, but they would pick up the dollar notes and then there would be an asset for them, but not a liability for anybody else. Right. Now, this is completely fallacious. If banks did that, yes, the causal mechanism would be as you describe it, but they don't. But I mean, wouldn't that, I mean, isn't, but it does, that does get over the issue that you've got money that's not debt that is being distributed in the economy. So people would have that money. If, if everyone was, able, if, you, if you had helicopter money and you dropped it and it was spread evenly amongst people, um, uh, it, you were just expanding the money supply. And we'll come to it in a second as to why you need to mm. do that. But if you, if you were doing it that way, I mean, you, you are distributing money that's not driven by debt and people spend it. So isn't that a good thing? That's a possibility, and that's why people are talking about quantitative easing for the people as a way yeah. of getting out of the you know, continued stagnation after the financial crisis. But the real money creation mechanism uh, is, is, the, is the classic one that banks have, central banks are coming out and saying uh, quite loudly now, including the Bundesbank, the banks create money out of double-entry bookkeeping. They do not need reserves to create it. It is simply a, uh, they create an asset on one side, which is a loan, uh, they create a liability themselves on the other side, which is your deposit account, which, of course, their liability is your asset. Uh, you can spend that money, but as well as getting the asset, which the, the cash to spend, you also get the liability, the debt to the bank. And this, this is a fact which central banks are now shouting from the rooftops. And as I bloody well expected, mainstream economists are denying what the central banks are arguing is the real world. Uh, because it doesn't fit their stupid little models. And the most recent illustration I've seen of that, unfortunately, I wasn't there to listen to it, uh, was on my session at the INET conference in Scotland just over the weekend, where one of the discussants was a guy I've met beforehand. And no, he's not a bad bloke. I mean, he's, you know, I, he's, the neoclassical economists aren't, uh, aren't necessarily bad people. But he was, uh, as we think of the rental, I'm trying to find his name now on a blog post as we speak. Uh, but he denied that banks create money. Mm. Okay, and what, co- what central banks or, or commercial banks or both? Commercial banks, he right. denied a pont- Pontus Rental, right? Uh, Rental, and he was, uh, as it happens, I, I had a talk in Cambridge University some years back, organized by the, uh, by the students there, and he was critiquing uh, my position, which he'd never heard of before, uh, because as far as he's concerned, he's, he's a classic young ish. Um, not a neoclassical economist. He didn't realise there'd ever been anything other than neoclassical economics, not only in general, but specifically at Cambridge, <laughs> whereas Cambridge used to be the bastion of non-orthodox thought with Joan Robinson and Nicky Caldor and so on. Right. So his belief was that when a bank loans out the money, it's already got the money in there because someone else has deposited it. That was his belief. Effectively, yeah. Wow. He said banks, banks don't create money. He says that... Uh, 
the central bank, uh, apparently made this comment saying that Barclays creates its own currency, quote unquote, this is apparently a quote from his presentation, pegged it part of the central bank currency, which only works to the central bank as complicit. In other words, as a typical thing for neoclassical economists, they come back and say that all money creation is the fourth of the central bank. So if anything goes wrong, like, for example, the Great Depression, that occurs because the central bank didn't create enough money. And if anything goes wrong because of, say, like inflation in the 1980s, that went wrong because the central bank created too much money. It's never the market system. It's never the private banks that are at fault. And this is the mindset. They actually literally believe this. Uh, and I can understand them in some ways believing it when in the counter-arguments are only put in obscure, non-orthodox journals like the Journal of Post-Keynesian Economics or the uh, uh, Review of Keynesian Economics and so on. But when it's being published in official documents by the Bundesbank, the Bank of England and the Bank of Norway, you think it might get through their thick heads. Well, how would he equate at a time when you've got very, very low interest rates and therefore very few people are depositing money because they get a very small return on it? Uh, how does it equate the fact that this is also coincides with very low interest means there's a, bit, a big demand for loans so that people can go and buy more expensive houses? How does he yeah. think? Uh, how does he think those two things level up? Well, the, the, the capacity for neoclassical economists to live with cognitive dissonance cannot be <laughs> underestimated. Uh, so it's, it's partly because, and this is why I have far more faith in central banks and bodies like the IMF and the OECD and the World Bank than I have in academic departments, because it's possible for people like Pontus Rental, yes, Pontus, you're welcome to get back in touch and complain about my pop post when you hear it. Uh, they can live in, a, in an academic bubble where they're completely insulated from what's actually happening in the real world. So what, what, what they, yeah, mm. they explain to you how their model works. They don't explain how the real world works. So in theory, um, I mean, money supply, I mean, it, I, I guess if it should be related to anything, it should be related to the amount of people and the amount of goods. So if we have 50% more people, we need 50% more money if uh, we're all consuming the same amount of goods each. If if we had that, then in theory, I guess, prices would remain steady. But, um, but I mean, do, so Grace is the question, do we need controls on money supply? I'm not sure how we do it. But just first of all, the question, should there be some sort of constraint on how much money is created by whatever means? Absolutely. And, and this is, uh, that then says, well, you've got to control, if you have, you have the realistic model of how money is created, you've got to have controls on central, on, on private bank behavior. Yeah. But the neoclassical thing, because they slot everything back to the central bank creating it, all this stuff is about controlling what the central bank does. And therefore, they completely ignore the private banking system. And you know, this is the sort of thing which, again, um, you could sort of understand prior to the financial crisis. But to have them spouting this stuff a decade after the crisis occurred, uh, in, in the, with the confidence with which they spout it, uh, is it, just, it's breathtaking. It's and, and why do these people get a forum on places like the Institute for New Economic Thinking, I might add? This is, I was, I was one of the speakers. So, I'm, you know, the people I'm actually quoting from um, Frances Coppola, who's a good friend of mine, who was in the audience at this. And she has a, a blog post called Beyond Disappointment, which we should link in the, in the, uh, in, in our podcast shortly. But she just talks about what it was like to be an extremely well informed, well respected, intelligent person who happens to be a woman in mm. the audience, listening to a bunch of mainly old white men. And up front, I definitely qualify. I'm old and I'm a white man, uh, spouting off on, on stages, 90% of them spouting drivel, which uh, is, is not 90%, maybe 60, 70%. Right. We're pre crisis thinkers in a post crisis world in a conference organized by the Institute for Neoconomic Thinking. And I am extremely, as, as Francis was, disappointed 
by the conference giving rather than confronting ignorance giving it a platform right let's get back to talking about money supply so i know yeah. i know we sort of were but, yeah. <laughs> but Sorry. Um, that's all right i know it's good good that you've I'm, I'm glad we, it's cathartic for you this whole thing i can mm. tell uh, but so you know if we if we want to control money supply i'm just trying to figure out what what contributes to it then so we know that the banks do what about mm. foreign money I mean, does that? There's, there's, there's three basic ways that money is created. Yeah, and the, the the simplest one to understand is the the banks. When banks lend out more than they get back in repayments, then the money, the level of debt grows, which is an asset of the banking sector, and the liabilities of the banking sector grow at the same time. Now, fundamentally, most of the liability, if you look at, there are some liabilities of the banking sector which are not themselves money, but any liabilities of the banking sector, which the public can use in transactions between itself, members of the public, uh, is money. And so is the folding stuff we take in our pockets. So the fundamentally, the money supply consists of bank deposits plus, uh, plus cash. So anything increases bank deposits, increases cash, increases the money supply. Now it comes like, okay, how can you increase the amount of money in your deposit account? One is you take out a loan from the bank. It is that simple, and it's why it's so frustrating to listen to people teaching young students at the, one of the best institutions in the country, teaching them, frankly, bullshit about how money is created, which he denies that banks can increase their liabilities by increasing their assets. Uh, so that's the, that's the first way. So banks lend out more, they get back in repayments, that creates money, but it creates an equivalent amount of debt when it does it. The other is the government spending more than it gets back in taxation. And this is the one, again, it's so frustrating after a, a decade after the financial crisis to still have to explain this, not to the public so much, but to the politicians and the academic economists. The government, when it runs a deficit, uh, is spending more than it gets back in repayments, and it can finance that fundamentally because it's the only institution that owns its own bank. So nobody objects. If you, I'm sure you didn't object back in 2008 when Kevin Rudd put $1,000 in your deposit account and called it a tax rebate. Do you remember mm. that? No, I do. I remember. Dude, sales okay. of flat screen coincided with the uh, you know uh, flat screen TVs being about the same amount of money as people had put into their bank accounts. So, so uh, Joey Harvey same. was uh, smiling all the way to the bank, funnily enough. And that money was created by the government spending more than it gets back in taxation, which is quite capable of doing. It's the only institution that can actually do that. So that's... Uh, in terms of spend more than it gets back in, it can run a permanent deficit. Uh, and, of course, it's a deficit in, in, a, in a closed system. If you look at the government on one side and the non-bank public on the other, it's deficit. Whatever it, it, it spends turns up in our bank accounts. So its deficit becomes our, pay, so our personal surpluses, the point that the MMT crowd have been trying to get through not very successfully for over, over three decades now. Um, so that's the second way. The government spends more than it gets back in taxation. That creates money. The third way is if you have an export surplus or a current account surplus, mm. you are getting in more foreign money than you are having to buy yourselves. And that is also a way of creating money. And it's the primary reason why Germany is such a successful economy at the moment. It's running about an 8% of GDP trade surplus, which fundamentally means that money has been created in Germany, equivalent to 8% of its GDP every year, by its trade balance, meaning that the government doesn't have to run a deficit to do that, and people don't need to borrow from the private banks to do it. So Germany is the only country and one of the few countries in the world with a falling level of both government 
and private debt because its money creation has been taken care of by the by its uh, current account surplus. Right. And on that last one, I mean, that can be good in that you're getting foreign money because you're selling more stuff overseas, which is a great thing. But also, what if, uh, let's say the example of uh, house prices in London, for example, if, if a Russian tycoon buys a house in London, uh, he's acquiring an asset that would... Uh, otherwise have been bought by British money, but he's uh, bringing foreign money into the equation and he's helping to increase the the price of that asset. So, uh, yeah, so it's not clear cut, is it, where those boundaries are? Yeah, and this is the the reason that you can have a country like the UK running austerity, spending less government money, creating less money than it should given the economic circumstances, but it, and also running a trade deficit at the same time, but through QE, which is another way to create money, we'd have to, we haven't spoken about that one specifically just yet, mm. uh, through QE and also through uh, foreign p- purchases of domestic assets, which means people effectively in that case take ruble, uh, deposit them at a bank in the UK, the bank in the UK presents those rubles to the central bank, the Bank of England, and the Bank of England buys them and and then pays them back with British pounds that turn up in the account of the person selling the property to the Russian oligarch. So that that and that court that money turns up and then the, the Russian oligarch, you know, either you know buys security cameras to make sure nobody can get inside his property uh, and leaves it vacant, hoping the price will rise. Where that price rise is actually driven by. Uh, both local mortgage buying, but also by the foreign buying that he's part of. Yeah. So you know, when and it, as we both know, London is full of empty, wealthy, wealthy, empty property. Sorry, empty, wealthy properties, uh, protected by security guards and security cameras. Yeah, which is a travesty, isn't it? A separate mm. issue for an, an, another day, but it's another contributor to the to the money supply. Look, I was watching a, a video by uh, a couple of uh, British junior doctors working in the UK to hear an Umar Nasser who've got a brilliant video series called Believe You Me. A lot of it is about uh, uh, about religion, but uh, they highlighted an interesting problem, which is, I mean, you've spoken about this before as well, that when money's injected into the economy uh, through quantitative easing, for example, or through, or, or through Thanksgiving alone, uh, but the the beneficiary tends to be the richest people. Certainly, with quantitative easing, it's it's the richest people. It's the financial sector uh, who are getting the money first. And uh, I mean, they they argue the case, and I'd be interested to see if you agree with this. I mean, the, if you imagine if lots of money is created through this system, and the first beneficiaries are people who work in the in the finance sector, they are getting uh, access to the uh, to this new money when prices are lower. So they go and buy stuff. Money's injected. Inflation prices uh, pushes the price up. If that new money ever does make it to the poorer people, they're paying more for goods than the rich people because the rich people bought it when the money was new and when the money supply was smaller. Is that Does that make sense? And is that what's it, happening? It, it does make sense. And this is the way QE is also creating money, but it's creating uh, mainly creating money in the financial sector and therefore pumping up financial assets. So uh, and that's that's what so the central bank in that sense is... is through QE uh, has become a fourth means of money creation in the sense that what it's doing is independent of what the Treasury might do. So normally to create money through the government running a, running a deficit, <coughs> pardon me, what it does is it sells bonds that are bought by the financial sector. And of course, that means that is actually in that case, that's a transfer of money from the financial sector to the government, which is then spent into the, the real sector of the economy. Uh, but what's happening with QE is that the 
the central bank is buying bonds off the financial sector, therefore directing money directly into the financial sector, which the financial sector then uses to buy assets, shares and property, which drives up the price of shares and property, which benefits the people who own them or sell them. Mm. And, and, and therefore, you then get a, of, of that, uh, that process of buying and selling, of course, you've got to hire a few real estate agents to do that. The real estate agents have to have Ferraris to drive to show the properties to the people they're showing them to. The Ferraris need to be clean. The person cleaning the Ferrari needs a cappuccino, et cetera, et cetera. You get a bit of a wash of that quantitative money, easing money into the real economy, but the vast majority of it circulates in the financial sector and drives up prices there, which is, you know, it, it's become bleedingly obvious that this bubble is only being, in terms of financial sector assets, is heavily being maintained by central bank money creation through an independent channel to the one that is normally used to create uh, money via government deficit spending. Yeah, but I mean, their argument is as well that the financial sector, because they're getting the money before we've seen this increase in the money supply, before inflation hits, they're getting the sort of like the time advantage that they can buy stuff cheaper. Yeah, they are. And it's, 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 uh, in this case, and this is a, a major argument. These aren't economists, by the way. These are doctors we're talking about, by the way. I've met them. They're good. Uh, they've got, they've got this advantage. They've not been trained in economics. Maybe that's, uh, maybe that's, their oh. benefit. Maybe that's a benefit for them. Absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's intellectually, I, I describe uh, economic education. Actually, I did your job. I've already used this term. Uh, not an education, it's a frontal lobotomy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so get back, let's go back to this, that, that, that point about the timing of it all then. Mm. Yeah, and that's because if you are, you know, getting, um, if, effectively, the financial sector uh, sells the bonds to the government, uh, to get the money money back in hand, they're then making the decisions about what assets to buy with the cash they've now got because the cash isn't earning them any income, so they, they have pressure to go and buy assets to get income-earning assets out of them, and they buy shares. And, of course, they buy shares that drives up the price of shares. So the people in the, in, in the financial sector actually doing this work are in a hiding to nothing to know they should be on the buy side. Uh, of the of the market because as it has often been said you don't fight the central bank certainly in those situations you don't and therefore they're riding the coattails and of course they're the first ones to get access and they're the ones whose job it is to do this so they've almost always got their own side accounts they're trading on their own benefit uh following uh, effectively front running what the government is doing so how do you control the money supply then if we think it's important that it needs to be controlled in some way i mean central banks would say probably you know that's what we do and we use two instruments we use interest rates uh, to do it and we also you know have quantitative easing but you know as you said you know the money they create is just part of the mix you've also got foreign money you've got government overspends and you've got the work of the commercial bank so well, is the, tr- the, the trouble is that again people like uh, pontus rental just misunderstand and misteach their students as to how you can control the money supply. So they think you control the money supply by setting reserve requirements, and uh, and then and also running a government deficit. They they try to limit what's done through the government deficit and say it cannot be done by reserve requirements. It's completely misunderstanding the money creation process. It has no impact whatsoever on the bank's capacity to create money. So you can't do it using the, the means that the central bank has to control the money supply. Don't control the money supply. So how do you control it then? You have to, first of all, realise that banks, the capacity to create money is a social licence. It's not something which uh, only banks know the magic of how to do it. If the, if you go through the process of registering a bank and have an equity basis, let's say you've got an equity of a, of a, of a billion pounds as your equity base for a bank, then 
you are able to lend money uh, on one side, which creates an additional asset for you. Uh, you can create that creates a liability at the same time. You can gear that uh, one billion pounds up to 10, 15 or 30 billion pounds through the lending process. Uh, it's just simply having the right to do it because what, what, it, what it gives you the right to say is that my deposits, money in my deposit accounts, any entries in my deposit account are money and you can spend them. And that is the way that they can add to the money supply. It simply comes out of the fact that you've given a social license to do it. Now, since it is so easy to create that money, it literally just takes a, you know, a computer screen and a few clicks of a computer software to create the asset and create the liability at the same time. And because it's so easy to do, it needs to be socially regulated. And well, you have to you, relying on letting banks decide what to do themselves. The easiest way they can create money is to is to have collateralized lending, where they lend against an asset, so that if the loan goes bad, they get to own the asset, and that ends up being a real estate bubble. Yeah, and that's exactly what banks have created me creating money for for the last twenty or thirty years. So, uh, is is the answer then uh, what your friend thinks is already happening, where you say to banks, "Well, look, you can only loan out money that you've got in uh, as deposits." Well, that's that's the proposals of positive money uh, to do that sort of thing, to say that banks can no longer uh, create loans and create assets in, indefinitely. They have to have a account at the central bank uh, wherein they lend to uh, a, a customer. The amount of that account goes down one for one with the loan they make, and therefore there is a, a strict limit on how much they can lend. Effectively, that's turning banks uh, into the same as what used to be building societies, where building societies uh, would have taken deposits and lend those deposits out. Um, and when, when they lent deposit out, the person whose deposit was lent out did not have the money to spend. Mm. This, is the, this is a big difference. Mm. That's the model the mainstream has of the real world. In some ways, Positive Money said, let's make the textbook model into the real world. So um, is, that, is that a good model? Is that a good approach? Seems to make a lot of sense to me. Its problem is, it's, I see two problems with it. One is that uh, you then have a, a government committee of staff by economists deciding how much money to create. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure they're going to make the wrong decision. So wouldn't it be the role of the central bank to do that? I mean, that would be that you'd give that they would say, well, okay, that we are really controlling the money supply now because mm-hmm. the only thing that we're not controlling now is government overspends and and foreign earnings and i guess you can say well look you know if you if we've got a a positive uh, trade balance then that's a good thing so let's not worry about that let's just worry about uh, all the other factors well the but that's partly where the trouble comes from because not worrying about that means the other factors come and bite you on the backside at a later stage so we just need a coordinated approach to, to money supply creation what the positive money proposals are about is saying uh we'll take away the capacity of private banks to create money all they can do is make a profit on the arbitrage effectively the the mm-hmm. difference between what they pay for deposits and what they uh what, what they pay this, this they'd be paying the government in that case for the uh, money and they've got to lend it out to the public for more and make a profit on the arbitrage range. Um, the trouble I see with that is that banks would then have far less profitability than they have at the moment, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but they would be absolutely dedicated to undermining that system over time. And frankly, I think they'd succeed. They would uh, use failures to create enough money, difficulty in getting hold of money compared to the current situation. Uh, they would use all these reasons as saying it was better when we controlled it. 
and we'd go back and have it abolished at a later stage, people having forgotten the chaos that was caused the last time the banks had complete control over the money supply. Right, but in, so, the- in, but in theory it works. You're just saying in, in practice it probably wouldn't because the banks would behave like absolute bastards. But, but it's also because you know, there's partly that I, I want to have the money creation capability directed to creative uses in capitalism. I want entrepreneurs to get it and I want firms to get it for working capital, which they used to get back when banks um, ran lines of credit, but they don't do that anymore because it's not profitable enough. So uh, we have banks fundamentally financing just asset price speculation and bugger all else. Uh, but if I would want to, the, the ideal situation for banks is they fund entrepreneurs. But of course, if they do that, then nine, five times out of six, they're going to lose all their money. And venture capital as a business itself is, is only built borderline successful anyway. Mm. Uh, but, but of course, I would rather see that money creation generating new businesses, a lot of which fail, than I'd rather see it driving up the prices of existing houses, all of which become too expensive. So, But do, bank, uh, does that, do banks yeah. need to be doing that? I mean, when you when you look at the way we are operating today with, you know, new ways of, of raising money, like, for example, you know, the fact that you might be, uh, you know, earning your living and funding your research, uh, you know, using a, a, an online tool that didn't exist mm-hmm. 10, year, 10 years ago means that, uh, you know, there are new ways of, cr- of creating money, which doesn't involve banks. I mean, not, well, creating, this, this, not creating money, but money that's already in circulation, getting it diverted to your cause through just interesting, you know, projects that capture public imagination. And that's what the internet does. We don't need banks to do that. Yeah, I mean, this is a feasible uh, alternative avenue as well to say that we, well, the, the problem I have about government cre- government control of money creation alone, which is the sort of positive money style proposal, is that you know, I've had enough experience of government bureaucrats to know what they yeah, do. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're not about to do anything imaginative or risky but sometimes you want imaginative and risky stuff done. So, for example, I'm, I'm as well as being supported on Patreon, I'm a regular uh, contributor to Indiegogo projects and Kickstarter projects when I like the technology being proposed. Um, and what I would like is to have that capability of the public to back um, innovative ideas they like uh, with money to be added to, to say, well, let's actually use, let's, let's, let's give everybody uh, the capacity to create uh, money themselves somehow, uh, you know, and, and you get the, you get a cash injection with the government, which you can only use to support entrepreneurial activities. Mm. Now it doesn't matter if you, it doesn't matter if it fails. I mean, there's you know, uh, the, the, because you expect if, as Elon Musk said in one of his presentations recently, if you're not failing regularly, you're not trying hard enough. You, failures are a necessary part of success. Um, and the, the, the danger about a bureaucratic approach is always trying to avoid failure. Uh, the entrepreneurial thing is take some risks, have some failures, have some big wins. So if we said, let's give everybody uh, the capacity to, uh, you know, X amount of money every year they can put into uh, innovative projects uh, through uh, things like Kickstarter, Indiegogo, Patreon, and so on. And, and if they get a return out of it, well and good. If they don't get a return out of it, they're simply sponsoring ideas they like. And then money creation gets done for creative purposes rather than for speculative ones, which is the way it's used right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. I mean, I wonder whether you need to do that or whether, you know, the growth of these tools and the inquiring mind will see that happen anyway. But, I mean, the, the other part of that equation is the government just giving you the money. So doesn't that doesn't that sort of raise the question that, you know, if you marginalise banks so that they really are just people, uh, places where people put money in and borrow money out of and, uh, you know, the relationship to, 
between the two should be the same. According to a lot of economists, it is already, so no change to the system there as far as they're concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, helicopter money is the rest of it. You know, get, we get back to where we started. The government just says, well, okay, the population's grown by this amount. We need this much extra money in, the, in, in circulation. Uh, it goes into your bank account tomorrow. Yeah, and but I've, what I can see, of course, is a huge, if we actually tried to bring that system about, a huge political struggle between what you can really call the rentier class, because that's fundamentally what banking is. By creating the money, you get a, you get a lien on an existing asset or an existing uh, business flow, and you charge money for it. Um, that's become the wealthiest part of society. So it, what we're talking about is actually a, a huge virtually social revolution Mm. and the cynic in me doesn't expect that revolution to win yeah all right uh we're talking the modern equivalent of marxism yeah fundamentally i mean there's a guy called uh, louis kelso published a book called the capitalist manifesto some time back and a large part of that was the idea that capitalists should distribute shares to their workers and slowly dilute uh, the ownership of capital to make it a more democratic system. Now, I thought that was as, as you know as likely as, as pigs taking off and flying to Mars because that's capitalists undermining their own uh, class interests. Uh, and there's a similar thing here with these ideas about reforming the banking sector because the banking sector has become so big and there's so much money being made and power coming out of that money in the financial sector. They're going to oppose these things lock, stock, and barrel. And and therefore those campaigns are going to face far more political resistance than they expect. And the financial sector is well and truly worked out how to do that over time. Um, so it, it makes part of me a, a cynic. If we've left out one other possible form of money creation, and maybe that's for another entire another show, but, of course, a lot of people think that uh, uh, blockchain technology and mm. cryptocurrencies are a new way of creating money. And... Um, Yes, okay, possibly they are, but my position is that currently they're a way of creating speculative uh, instruments. Yeah, which which, you know, which we've spoken about in the past. I mean, I yeah, mean, and yeah. in in effect, money is uh, you know I think your point was money is anything that anyone will accept. You know, you can create money if people are going to accept it. Um, you know, congratulations, you got yourself a yeah, new currency. But, but but it needs characteristics that make that more effective. And I still don't believe the cryptocurrencies have those characteristics as as well as the creation. You've got to have a form of stability too, and they don't have that stability, so they're not yet, in my opinion, working functionally as money. But uh, yeah, but you know the, the fundamental mechanism is the government running a deficit, therefore spending more than it gets back in in, uh, in repayments. As again, spending more than it gets back in taxation. Banks lending more than they get back in repayments. Running a current account surplus, and then the central bank doing QE. I think they'd say those are the four mechanisms. And at the moment, we stuff them all up. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, final question then: If uh, you know, if they, if that utopian vision where the banks don't have a great deal of influence and the government is just pumping money into the uh, into the economy as as it sees fit, if that if that's not possible, um, how? I mean, two questions: What do we do? And secondly, is is the money supply the key issue here? Do, do we are there more important things to worry about than how much money is being pumped into the economy? Well, there certainly are, uh, but if you don't put the money into the economy, the economy tends not to function at the same time, so that gets in the way of the other effective things being done. So we, we do need to get this sorted out. Uh, the trouble is that sorting it out, I mean, normally uh, when you sort something out, you have experts to help you do it, and unfortunately an economic of experts to prevent us understanding how it happens in the first place. So um, mm. that's why this whole area becomes so fraught. Uh, if the experts knew what they were talking about, we might have a chance to do something effective, but the experts haven't got a clue 
um, the so you know the experts like you know, academic economists in the main, and so what we end up doing is a is a melange that gets nowhere. But uh, a frustrating experience for those who actually understand how things work. <laughs> okay, and hopefully a few more people do understand in the last half hour. Uh, great to talk, Steve. We'll catch you again soon. Okay, mate. There we are. A uh, slightly agitated uh, Steve Keen. I think we got him today, but no matter. Uh, it all works. Uh, next time, uh, I think what we said we're going to talk about this time, uh, but we'll push it back to next time. DSGE models. Dynamic Stochastic General Equilibrium models. What the hell are they? They are the lifeblood of monetary policy analysts, but how do they work or do they not work, as the case may be? Uh, we'll look at that next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll see you then. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.